Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. I'm John Pothorz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So much to talk about today. We have martial law in Canada. We have approaching uh, martial action in Ukraine. We have uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, arguing that uh, kids have no problem being in masks. So why is everybody complaining that kids are in masks? They seem to they seem to be doing just fine and they don't mind, which is an interesting uh, act of mind reading of 75 million people in the United States who don't have an independent voice and don't publish op eds and things like that. so I don't know. I don't know where to go. Uh, um, so uh, our the teeny bopper prime minister of uh, of, of Canada has uh, decided that he no more no more Mister Nice Idiot, and uh, he's uh, applying uh, a martial law executive order used by his father, the prime minister, fifty years ago to quell an actual terrorist group, um, a Quebec separatist group that was. Uh, you know, bombing all over, all over Quebec. Uh, and here we have martial law being declared to clear the streets of Ottawa and other places of the uh, trucker convoys. Um, Canada does not have our constitution. Canada is not a state of the United States. Canada does not have our constitutional structure or our uh, commitment to civil liberties uh, in the same way uh, as a commonwealth state and not an independent uh you know nation with its with its own uh set of traditions of uh free speech free assembly and all of that those are those are certainly permitted and indulged in and all of that but uh, not not defended by the you know the highest laws and principles of the of the state so um why should we care We should absolutely care. First of all, it's not uh, the exact same law that Trudeau the Elder invoked in the 70s. It's a successor law invoked for the first time since it was passed in 1988. Um, The the polls were terrible for Trudeau. He had to do something. The Canadian public was against this. It has become very disruptive, economically devastating for Ontario and particularly Ottawa. And uh, people were tired of it. He, he, He would have the backing of the public to use the Emergencies Act, I think, to remove the blockades and to break up the demonstrations that have ground economic life in Ottawa to a halt. Um, Where he goes too far and where there are civil liberties protections in Canada and civil liberties groups that are up in arms where uh, these liberties are being violated is with this invocation of the government's ability now to just debank you, um, to prevent you having engaged in thought that is not approved to prevent you from navigating the banking system. Not only that, to prevent your employer from navigating the banking system, to lose access to assets that are under their, that, that, that is their property um, for engaging in expression that is deemed inappropriate by the, by the state. Um, This is an an incredible misread of the moment, um, a, a profound abrogation of the social compact and I'm not a Canadian, but I, even I understand that in North America, we do have a social compact around the freedom 
to engage in in thought uh, and expression. And it is true in, in Canada, although to a lesser degree than it is in the United States, it's not codified in the Constitution. Um, nevertheless, this will only reinforce the persecution complex uh, that is animating these people. It will give all the reason in the world for uh, both Americans and Canadians who believe their bodily autonomy is being violated because they're engaged in thought crimes to perceive themselves to be under, th under threat, under siege, uh, and behave accordingly. I think it's a, it's a real mistake uh, that will only reinforce the conditions that they're trying to alleviate, psychological conditions. Well, isn't it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the banking tool in particular was was devised to deal with terrorism. So the the very fact that they're using a tool that's that's actually supposed to be deployed against terrorist activity to deal with domestic uh, disagreement and unrest. And I say this as someone who I hate when I hated when Black Lives Matter shut down streets all around my city. I hate when the environmental groups do it. And I would hate it if a bunch of truckers did it, too. I don't think it is an appropriate thing to illegally block uh, major thoroughfares that people need to use to go about their lives as an act of protest. I think it's dumb no matter which side of the aisle is doing it. But I agree with Noah. The, the, it's the message that he is sending is weirdly, I think he thinks he's, is, it's a flex, but in fact, it, it's, it's uh, telegraphing a great deal of weakness on his part that he couldn't find some other way to deal with this uh, movement uh, using the means necessary without invoking these emergencies. You're powers. absolutely right. The pretense that they're using is that they uncovered a series, uh, a couple of trailers that had weapons in them. Uh, at a branch protest, I don't know, Alberta, somewhere. In Alberta, yeah, yeah, Coots, at a border town called right, Coots in Alberta. Right, precisely. So it's the threat of potential, the potential threat of violence. They found 13 long guns and handguns and a machete. And that alone has justified the invocation of emergency powers across the country that represent the prospect of you, if you engage in a particular form of expression that the government doesn't like, you will no longer be able to provide for your family. You will no longer be able to make a living. You will have to live underground and in some in a cash economy, perhaps. I have no idea what they think they're trying to do, but they're creating an underclass uh, for engaging in thought that is inappropriate. I, I Yeah, I mean, toward what no. end? By the way, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, Abe. Toward what end? This is the further promotion of vaccination mandates. Most of this country is vaccinated. So they're going to war with a teeny weeny minority um, that I believe deserves to be policed. They should be policed. They should be. These are not permitted demonstrations. They should be removed. But to what end are we engaged in this really serious escalation of domestic hostilities? What is the end game here? Do these ends justify the means? So, you know, we've seen populist uprisings, gatherings, protests across the globe over the past couple of years, and various governments react in different ways. More liberal governments are more permissible and they hope things will die down, and sometimes they do. Frankly, authoritarian governments <clears throat> crack down entirely, put an end to it. This sort of middle ground strikes me as the worst because you have a population that recognizes uh, that it lives in some sort of democracy, uh, it is granted some freedoms, yet you're doing this authoritarian move on it. Um, to me, that's the most combustible combination that we've seen yet. Um, so I, I, I agree this is, this is um, this is only going to uh, further erupt everything. I think it is important for American listeners to understand uh, 
that one of the reasons this happened is not that this protest is wildly popular and is being suppressed. It is unpopular. It is not what we are, a lot of people might seem to be getting if they are only following the coverage in the conservative media in the United States. 20 to 25% or something like that of Canadians support the aims and goals of the truckers and the convoys and Trudeau was finding his popularity ratings in the sewer because it was he looked weak in dealing with them and not putting it down, not because he wasn't listening to them and taking account of their concerns and trying to deal with their you know legitimate grievances about vaccination. That is not how the politics of this are working in Canada. And that should be understood because I think we we are applying, some people are applying an American filter to this, and it is it is an incorrect filter. Canadians are not Americans, and they have a different political system, and they are much more uh, obedient uh, to authority in, in general terms, and much more, um, you know, much, much more passive in relation to the actions of their of their government and uh you know it's a single hell you know single payer system which has and has the effect of narcotizing a lot of people in in funny ways toward central you know central government and it's it's um and so we are we are we have to understand this correctly like this is trudeau trying to look like a tough guy because that's what the canadian people want they're not saying oh my god these vaccine mandates are going too far now it's possible that as this goes on uh they will it's possible that like what we're seeing here is a canary in the coal mine or a knife's edge or something like that that these uh convoys these protesters these uh truckers who are who i think have a legitimate complaint to make when they say what we do how we live how we make our livings um, we, there is no justifiable reason to force us to vaccinate. We're not, we don't go near anybody. <laughs> we were on our own trucks by ourselves. We drop off packages. We can keep our distance, whatever. All of that seems very legitimate as a cause and a concern. Uh, the, the blockades, uh, you know, added a new wrinkle and, um, and, I think there is a certain love of the idea. There's a certain idea on the right. It's a, it was a very popular idea roundabout as Trump was, was rising, which is like we unilaterally um, disarm ourselves. Like the left can do anything, but, you know, we say we're going to follow the rules and we shouldn't do that anymore. We should do what they do. We should, we should demonstrate the way demonstrate. We should, you know, use the powers of the presidency and powers of government to oppress our enemies the way they use it to oppress us. That's like Kurt Schleister, people like that on Twitter, John Nolte, this kind of Breitbart view of the world. And so some of this is pleasing because it's precisely that it's Black Lives Matter in reverse, or it's some version of that. It's like, they did it, now we're going to do it. And they, they look how all the liberals don't like it when it's not, uh, you know, on their side, ha, 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 that's really funny, that's really great. But that's all part of the cosplay game of 
uh, American politics. And this is something else that's going on. It's just interesting. Like, and I, I still, I'm not quite sure why we should care. I mean, wh- why we as Americans sitting here should care. Can I, can I, I have a, re- but, I have an, yeah. I have an answer to that. One, one of one answer is that the, setting aside the civil liberties issues, which are always useful to remind Americans what, why they need protecting in our own country by comparing it to other countries. Like Noah said, I actually think there's another there's another argument that that's trying to be created here, aided and abetted by our own media, CNN in particular, which is that these these sort of uh, protests, regardless of tactics, are encouraging uh, violence and right wing and hate, violent right wing hate. So CNN had this story which said, oh, well, there was a tip line set up in Toronto and it for people to report on any sort of violence or hate motivated speech that they see at the trucker convoy and they've gotten all these reports. Well, if you actually read the story and you follow the links, there's no such uh, reports of some increase in hate speech and and hate motivated crimes. But this idea that anytime conservatives protest, it's vast right wing hate conspiracy theorizing folks coming out of the woodwork with their machetes. That's a message that a lot of people in our own political context love to elevate whenever there's a, you know, this is why parents who were protesting at school boards were called terrorists. So I do think it's important to look at how the tactics of different groups when they are protesting are treated by both our leading uh, figures in the media and also by elected officials in this country. So when they talk about these protests, they're talking about them in a very particular way that's meant to signal to their own uh, base that this is right wing hate groups here that are doing this when in fact there might only be one or two wackos, just as there are plenty of you know, extreme wackos on the other side that don't get covered when these things happen. So I think in that sense, it is important for us to follow what's going on there and how it's being handled, particularly by the media. I I try to stay. I'm sorry. Continue. Well, I just want to say I just want to back that up. I mean, I think we have to care because all these trends and arguments are transnational. Uh, The 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 pandemic kind of put us all under one umbrella, even though we are different and uh what goes on in response to uh, 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 to uh, new panics, new reactions, um, it absolutely bleeds through via the media, government. I mean, we have to care because Biden apparently cared, right? Uh, the U.S. government took a stand on it. Um, so we are invested whether or not we want to be. De-banking is a very popular idea now, and it's a terrifying idea. Um, in we have civil liberties protections, we have uh, constitutional protections that don't allow for what we're seeing in Canada in the absence of some kind of a, of a national emergency measure like martial law. Um, that being said, during you know in the fourth week of the Joe Rogan controversy, there was absolutely an effort to pr- pressure private banks not to process transactions related to Spotify. They wanted banks to debank Spotify just to, to exact their vengeance. Now that's the sort of thing that you can do via private pressure. The government pre- can't do that in the absence of emergency measures, but we've seen that the government is, a, is a, a peripheral player in this sort of thing. When you create enough public pressure, you can't affect that kind of, particularly a smaller institution. You can't, you can't scare these banks into doing something that is plainly tyrannical. Uh, so, I think we should all care about the debanking movement because they're trying to use it here as much as they're apparently now using it abroad. It's not going away. It's only going to become a more attractive tool in the tool sheds of these would-be authoritarians, people who want to silence you for thinking the wrong things. Um, and right now we're seeing it on display in, in real time. It would be foolish of us not to think it can't happen here. So 
I, like many perfectly well-educated people, um, don't focus on this for a living. I do not understand cryptocurrency. I've tried. I've studied it. I've read tens of thousands of words about it. I am no closer to understanding it or gronking it than than I was at the beginning. I feel like Andrew Jackson and the Jacksonians in the early 19th century who could not understand the idea of currency because what they what they could understand was trading a, a, a good for a good, but they couldn't understand the idea of a symbolic representation of the value of something being something that could be traded and used in place of goods. And it was a, an intellectual leap they could not make. I fear that I am that I fear at my worst, that that is what's going on with me and cryptocurrency, that it is the wave of the future. And I just don't understand it. And therefore I like to default into the idea that it's just a scam, a gigantic, crazy lunatic scam. I bring this up only to say that all of these efforts to politicize things like banking uh, give you a sense of why there is a real interest in this alternative world financial system being created from the ground up with supposed you know transparency that is itself transnational and not under the thumb or under the aegis or being controlled by any central bank or you know a, f- a reserve system or anything like that that you can see why after 2008 um people who were uncommonly farsighted about the kind of danger posed to the good working order of the international financial system might think that it was worth husbanding some resources and putting them off on the side where they couldn't get seized by governments that didn't understand or couldn't really couldn't really figure out how to take control of them and i think this is one example of that you know the this isn't exactly uh, uh, debanking, de- but when all this money was being raised for the truckers on GoFundMe, which is, of course, essentially a kind of website donation system, right, where you they just collect money and, and then GoFundMe takes a tiny cut for its own transaction costs. But it's just a centralized, safe thing and i think we've probably all given to it for people who are in need or something like that and there is this and suddenly gofundme says we're we're not going to send the money to the truckers we're going to take and we're going to donate it to people we like it's not their money like (laughs) they can't that's theft (laughs) well and they and they they stopped but it kind of isn't, you see, in the end. It's it's theft. It, it, morally, it's theft. But apparently in the document, in the 27-page thing that you don't read when you sign up for GoFundMe, it gives them some sort of option to do something like this. And then when they're called on it, they didn't do it. But you can see how um, this, uh, the, the, the way in which politics has now entered into every nook and cranny of life and the idea that political pressure can be brought to bear on anything, including a charitable donation system that, you know, this is only a, a way station. It's not, 
it's a way station. <laughs> it's like an envelope or a, or, a, or a mailbox or something like that. And now suddenly the idea is you can seize the mailbox or you can take somebody's envelope. That's, that is pretty striking. And it just seems to me it's going to hasten. You look at this and it is going to hasten this idea that there needs to be a parallel private banking system in, on, on, on Earth and obviously now there is this effort to uh, democratize it. That was what was going on on the Super Bowl. There were, I don't know, six or seven crypto ads. There was the, the bouncing ball QR code for Coinbase. There was that Larry David ad, which was, I don't remember what that was about. There was the Ben Affleck ad. Matt Damon's ad wasn't on, but he's done a big ad for crypto. So there is this effort to kind of but by democratize. The way, yeah. But even there... <clears throat> Governments are trying to hem in the the crypto market too, um, and uh, crypto advocates are losing their minds trying to fight back. So that that's not right. even necessarily the the off the grid spot. Well, I mean, look, this is a complicated issue, right? Because we don't want there to be an unresponsive private world banking system where you know basically the mafia and terrorists and criminals and stuff like that can 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 trade with each other you know uh, out of out of out of out of sight and out of mind like that's that's terrifying that's not i mean there you can see the downside to this and the terrifying downside and the idea that there needs to be some one of the things about banking systems is they may be you know they may be politicized or you know they but they are but they're also they're also part of a world order right they're part of a generalized liberal world order in fact the let me give you an example of the debanking issue on the other side right which is one of the threats that we have levied that we have you know um uh, levied uh, against putin and and russia in case there is a full-fledged invasion of ukraine is the idea that we will deny them access to the swift banking system that is a that is a huge nearly unprecedented step if that happens because what that that literally is swift is the way that money travels electronically period that's 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 all it is if you if you if you push the button and you say okay no more transactions can go to and from russia like that i mean you are doing something that indicates this the the seriousness with which you take the first military incursion you know war on you know country to country serious territorial war since world war ii but do we really want to go there you really want to subordinate the 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 free passage of currency from one country to the other individuals literally being able to transfer their money from one place to another subordinated to the political interests of, of your government. That's scary. Cause you do it once you could do it 10,000 times. Something is once unthinkable, then it becomes thinkable. Then it becomes uh, just another, uh, you know, tool in the toolbox. So these are very complicated. I mean, it, this is this is a head-spinningly complicated issue. Um, so I guess we need to care about all this because stuff is happening in real time that could have consequences for us down there that have nothing to do with trucking or vaccinations or 
or Canadian civil liberties, which I will frankly confess I don't care about and I don't really think I need to care about. I mean, I'm I I, I I'm sorry if you know if Canadians don't have enough civil liberties, let them fight and get more. You know, let them write a let them write a better constitution, let them do a constitutional reform and write a better constitution and not let this happen to them in future. But I don't know. Is that nihilistic or cynical of me? I, I, I think I'm it's nihilistic sure. and cynical, yeah. And I think it's self-defeating in part because we're in creating a movement that I, I think has very justified concerns about its ability to have a place in society and people don't accept that. Uh, you're condemning them to a, a fate worse than death and they'll fight against that. And I think we're, in, we're incentivizing the creation of an insurrectionary movement in every literal sense of the term. Yeah, see that it's the radicalizing impact of some of these decisions that I think is is being downplayed. So when 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 you forswear other options, other more moderate options as a leader, and you choose something like what Trudeau has done, and if you're a platform like GoFundMe or other platform, other tech platforms have done this as well. If you decide to suppress all news stories or all links or or whatever, instead of you know giving people an alert saying this might not be true, like those are choices you can make as a platform. When you choose the most extreme option you will cultivate extremism in the people who who suffer the consequences of it and that you know for the in a, in a highly polarized environment that's really important and that's i think another reason why these stories from overseas or other countries matter because they they become national news stories i mean jen saki answered questions about the convoy uh, the other day during a press briefing abe's absolutely right that it became something the administration responded to on one side rather than the other and that leads to a lack of nuance in all of these discussions. So you can no longer be uh, totally on the have some sympathy for the trucker convoys uh, frustrations with COVID restrictions, but still be pro-vax. You're either pro-trucker convoy or you're anti-trucker convoy. And the, the nuance is lost for people trying to actually who are most people in the middle saying, you know what, I, I agree with this, but I don't like their tactics or I understand their frustrations. But, you know, isn't there another way to do this? That's how most people think about politics. But our conversation about politics happens at a much more polarizing and simplistic level. The last poll I saw found that most Canadians believe most being like 54% of the country believe that there's nothing to sympathize with in this movement. They don't deserve our sympathy. But another 45% said they do deserve our sympathy. That's not a small number. It's a minority, but it's not a small minority. Whether or not that's, you know, captures all this sentiment, who knows? But it's not, an, it's not an, a population that is directly proportional to the size of these demonstrations. It's far larger, far larger. And we're right. talking about now rendering these people unemployable, not just because they can't navigate the banking system, but because they're the assets that they use for that company provided assets are now going to be uh, have their insurance revoked. Um, the company and employer will be fined that will trace these individuals around for the rest of their lives. We're creating a permanent underclass of people who cannot survive in the current econ economy and the, electric the uh, electronic information economy. They will have to move underground. And they will behave as people who live underground. Okay. Lawless. But why? Why? Because they believe their personal autonomy is being violated. And the government yeah. thinks that it has absolutely no, no choice but to force 100% of the population to get vaccinated, both of which are insane. Okay. We're at impasses so over two things that are complete madness. And it's leading to actual conflict, physical right. violence. Okay. So this is a very... So either 
this is a camel's nose under the tent thing or it's not the problem isn't that what the truckers uh want but let me put it this way the 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 truckers deserve sympathy they have a perfectly legitimate argument for why they shouldn't get vaccinated but they should probably get vaccinated fine they choose not to that's fine a lot of people choose a lot of things you know uh that i that are stupid <laughs> you know i mean whatever uh they can choose it and they shouldn't be punished for making that choice and on the other hand uh forcing me to be concerned about their uh, livelihoods when it, the same decision would be just to bite the bullet and get vaccinated I, I this is a this is a hard sell for me however if what we have here is it starts with vaccination and then it gets to you get debanked and investigated and driven into the underground economy because in Canadian terms, you say the wrong thing about an indigenous culture, you know, or the first, you know, the first people or whatever they, whatever, whatever term is being used, or you, you know, <clears throat> you do something that violates uh, a, a, a leftist, a different leftist social norm. And then again, you've created the conditions under which since you did it with the vaccinations, now you can do it with stuff that is that is 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 less serious. I mean, that's you know. So, well, I mean, in that they, sense, I mean, we they, already got they, here. Canada, uh, Canada prosecutes comedy, right? Com comedians who say the wrong thing about LGBT. That's uh, my Q point. People. Right, but, and they, right. So, and and they, they, right. They I prosecute mean, that, them, but they're not. But they're Peterson. not banked. Yeah, I mean, that's well, how Jordan I mean, Peterson became a superstar. Yeah, it's a criminal yeah. violation, but you're also talking about very prominent individuals who make of themselves public figures. We're not talking well, about that yeah, anymore. Yeah, We're talking yeah, about individuals who engage in acts of expression that are anathema to what the government wants to promote. Right, but an act of expression, which is taking, uh, you know, a 20-ton vehicle and parking it in a way that makes it impossible for other people to get around right well it, i think you're narrowing the precisely remit. you're narrowing this in a way that we have no reason to believe that's how it's going to be enforced this this is this is now we're talking about territory here that we can't these are un uncharted waters here the notion here that this will these act these these actions will be limited to individuals who are only using their vehicle for this express purpose defies belief because there's just not enough vehicles to to justify this i mean there's like 400 or so that are right. blocking these these areas right here so you're talking about 400 people 400 companies that's justifying this action i don't think so this is a, a deterrent measure to get people off the streets and it doesn't work unless you use it against the people on the streets okay i mean fair enough it's a it's a very very interesting moment and as you can see i think if you're willing to think capaciously about this, you, you, you can't come to a single easy conclusion. I mean, it's a terrible thing when a free society led by an elected official pulls an emergency powers card. Um, in my lifetime, we've really only done it under a couple of circumstances, right? We did it after 9-11. We put much of downtown New York under martial law in certain areas and in D.C. under martial law. Um, obviously, there were 
you know, emergency powers used um, with COVID, emergency powers are sometimes used with, um, you know, when there's a, a flood or a natural disaster or something like that. Um, and uh, it, they shouldn't be used. That's, they should only be used in extreme emergencies and they should be lifted immediately upon their use. Because as we've seen the, the self-destruction of Andrew Cuomo, the taste of blood in the mouth, the, the hunger for being the person with emergency powers doing whatever it is that you could do with emergency powers is just too tempting. For it's also politicians. Well, and I think to, to Noah's point earlier, the other temptation and the, the, the danger of the normalization of the use of emergency powers by everyone from little local, you know, two bit officials to governors and presidents is that the problem here is that they're starting to be uh, used for ideological uh, reckonings and ideological control versus actual, um, you know, dealing with practical matters on the ground. So when when emergency powers are used to to ideologically isolate people with whom you disagree, and the government has the power of the state behind it, no matter if you're a little tiny two bit town in the middle of nowhere or you're the federal government. That's a real danger. And that's something we're seeing hints of. We haven't really seen full blown example of. But I think to, to Noah's point about what Canada is doing, there's certainly a component of that in this in, or a fear about that being one of the motivations. Starting to uh, today, American intelligence officials talk to the Associated Press about the absolute public menace represented by Zero Hedge a conspiratorial website with 1.2 million Twitter followers out of a country of 330 million that is supposedly funneling Russian intelligence and laundering and retailing Russian intelligence into the national conversation. This is a fringe website that I'm only peripherally aware of because it's so fringe and obviously insane. What is the federal government's role in determining who is, is promoting, quote, disinformation? What is the tangible effect of this promotion of information that the government doesn't like on American policymakers, on American policy, on Americans generally. And then when you get down into the article, they talk about some of the conspiracy theories that they promote up, including, you know, China engineered the virus as a bioweapon, debatable articles touting natural immunity for COVID-19 and unproven treatments. This is what we're talking about as an amplifier of conspiracy theories and misinformation, such to the, to the point that the federal government has to anathematize the, the, the speech the expression of a private entity, where, no where law you, has been violated. <clears throat> I've been reading Zero Hedge for 13, 14 years. And it's an interesting, bizarre site because it started as the what's going on here with TARP and TALF and stuff in, after the financial meltdown. Um, uh, they're not telling you the truth about a lot of stuff. The guy who runs it <clears throat> goes under the pseudonym of Tyler Durden, who's the name of the lead character, the Brad Pitt character in uh, in Fight Club. And um, and it's very interesting. It, and of course, it's one of those places that predicted 99 of the last one recessions, like every single piece of economic or financial news that comes out, Zero Hedge analyzes as being, you know, like one step away from uh, disaster. And it was a very potent place through about 2011 uh and then you know as as it's as its prognosticative power seemed to dim <clears throat> because the economy wasn't doing what it said the economy was going to do it, it it seemed to lose altitude and then it did get it has this weird um one of uh it, it, it loves to publish a guy named paul craig roberts who was a 
early supply sider who became a virulent, vile anti-Semite and Russia lover, like Russia lover of the old school, like of the Dana Rohrabacher, you know, uh, right-wing Russia lover school that that predated the 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 Trump uh, fandom and some of the other uh, fandoms that we've that we've since seen. The idea that zero hedge would be viewed in this way uh, is 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 pretty startling, and it's pretty horrifying in this sense. The other sense of this, which is that this whole line that we have to do something about misinformation. We have to do something about misinformation. We do have something to deal with misinformation. It's called the First Amendment. That's why there is a First Amendment. The first law of the United States is that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Speech is the antidote to other speech. And, you know, when I read our old colleague, Max Boot, now saying what we need is the fair, we need we need standards for these co companies which are peddling misinformation. Government must intervene. I'm like, good. You know, I hope government intervenes and shuts you down. I'd like to see you have, I'd like to see you get visited by, you know, by somebody who comes in and says, you know, what you just said actually is violative of our first amendment. And, um, you know, uh, speaking against our first amendment is really an act of misinformation and, uh, you know, that kind of threat to the First Amendment really should, I think we're going to start monitoring your writings and maybe reading your email to make sure that you're not peddling more disinformation about the First Amendment. I mean, that is kind of where this all go goes. It, it well, goes somewhere worse because it's not even disinformation. It's dissent uh, under the guise of disinformation. So if you have uh, uh, actual information, whether it be about Hunter Biden's laptop or about the uh, possible origins, the lab origins of, of COVID that's called disinformation. But really, it's 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 a minority opinion. And and that is where the crackdown comes. And that's and that that's what connects, frankly, the Canadian truckers and Joe Rogan and, you know, this this whole. So so there, there's I mean, you cannot care, but then you could you're sort of not caring about it anything because it, it, also, it is really all also of a piece is the fda now peddling um is, is the fda a threat to the good working order of our society now that it seems to be uh slowing the role of of of, of vaccinations for kids under five and raising some questions about the vaccination regime for kids between the ages of five and 18 there's uh, the fda itself is seeing data and seeing things that are suggesting that maybe this isn't the best idea or it's not really, you know, it's not really helpful. It doesn't really trigger enough of an immune response, all of that. That's, that's the FDA implicit in a lot of the talk that we've heard about misinformation in relation to COVID and the, you know, and, and, and COVID-19 is that any writing that calls that, that, that expresses any kind of skepticism about the vaccine regime is itself something that needs a tag at the bottom of it, at the very least, to say, please be careful, talk to your doctor, whatever it is you're supposed to say, or it should be suppressed entirely. And that's uh, vaccinations, that's masking, all of that stuff. So is the FDA now part of the problem? The FDA? Um, 
Well, and and again, to the ideological point, this spreads very rapidly beyond, you know, national security issues or public health issues. It becomes ideological issues. And as as, as uh, you mentioned earlier, Abe, in Canada, it involves things you are and not a lot you are and are not allowed to say about the biological realities of sex differences, for example, that can get you labeled as a spreader of misinformation. And that's where we're headed too. We have our friend Barry Weiss has an interesting essay by a woman who used to work for Levi's where she just talks about the pressure she felt, uh, the constant pressure to suppress her own speech about things she deeply cared about, largely involving children's education and whatnot, and how she eventually had to leave in order to feel like she could say the things that that she wanted to say. And that, again, private company, not the government, but this idea that there are harmful speech, there's harmful speech that could yeah, um, ironically harm minorities in this country, that the, that the government's power should be used to suppress things that are dissenting from that view. We are headed in that direction and people should be concerned. And the younger generation of Americans have a very different understanding and view of free speech than we older folks do. And that should concern us. There was this oh, cartoon. Guys. I was just reminded of this cartoon, very popular cartoon that uh, it was about, you know, this woman from the off screen says, are you coming to bed? And somebody's on the computer and says, I can't. This is important. The person behind the off screen says, what? And the guy says, someone's wrong on the Internet. This was a tale, uh, a cautionary tale about misplaced priorities and hypervigilance bordering on paranoia. I mean, you're you're spinning your wheels doing something that you cannot control. The th- controlling the thoughts of other people, especially people who are irrelevant to you in your life. Now it is best practice. It's increasingly public policy, but it's still hypervigilance bordering on paranoia. It's still misplaced priorities. Okay, we got to uh, talk a little bit uh, because we started yesterday talking about Sarah Palin. And we got to talk about developments in the Sarah Palin uh, suit uh, against the New York Times. Before we do that, let me talk to you about our new advertiser, BattleBox. How are you going to find your new favorite piece of outdoor gear? If you sign up for a BattleBox, it finds you. BattleBox is your go-to monthly subscription for hand-picked outdoor survival and everyday carry gear. Getting the best gear for yourself not only takes time, it can be incredibly expensive. That's why BattleBox brings you name-brand, high-quality products every month at half the price of what they cost on their own. Just pick the box that works for you and get tested and vetted products you can trust that are selected by an outdoor team, an expert team of outdoor professionals from an aquapod emergency water kit to an atomic bear survival baby delivered right to your doorstep each month. BattleBox has shipped over 1 million boxes since 2015 have been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Survivor's Edge. Find out why outdoor enthusiasts call BattleBox the best gear I never knew I wanted. Sign up, receive, survive. What are you waiting for? Don't miss another BattleBox mission. And now... From now until March 31st, get a free mystery box worth $115 or more with any new subscription at trybattlebox.com slash commentary. That's a free mystery box worth in excess of $115 right now at trybattlebox.com slash commentary. Here's how you spell it. T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X.com slash commentary. No E. That's T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X.com slash commentary. So one of the weirdest things that has ever happened happened yesterday. The jury is deliberating in the defamation libel trial of Sarah Palin against the New York Times and Judge uh, Jed Rakoff, a man who in 2002 declared the death penalty, which is the only actual punishment mentioned in the Constitution, unconstitutional, after a fight over this question was settled by the Supreme Court 
uh, in the 1970s when the Supreme Court briefly declared the death penalty unconstitutional and then re-restored its constitutionality uh, in, a, in, a, in a subsequent decision. Uh, Rakoff's done a lot of stuff like this. Rakoff announces uh, as the jury is deliberating that he is going to dismiss the case. Uh, that uh, the, the, the exceptionally high standard required by New York Times v. Sullivan had not been reached by Sarah Palin. She did not prove that the Times was malicious and reckless or that it had an enduring hostility to her and that he would dismiss it. And, but he would wait. He wouldn't tell the jury. He would wait until the jury comes back with its decision because uh, there's going to be an appeal anyway. So if the jury came back and found for Sarah Palin, for example, uh, he had created the conditions under which the New York Times, he was, the jury would find for Sarah Palin, and then he would dismiss the case anyway. And then there would be an appeal. So I've been asking around, I've been asking people uh, heavily involved in criminal justice matters and people who have argued before Judd Rakoff and, and all that, if they've ever heard of anything like this, and nobody ever has. As far as I can tell, nobody has ever heard of any action any remotely comparable to what Judd Rakoff, who was almost 80 years old, did uh, uh, yesterday. I mean, as, as somebody uh, wrote to me, um, he, he has the power to dismiss the case based on supposed lack of sufficient evidence without letting it go to the jury. He could have done that at any point. If he had done that, Palin would have appealed anyway, but that is part of his remit. But now, even if the jury finds for the Times, Palin will have an argument that Rakoff's decision tainted the jury findings because they're not sequestered. So they could easily find out that he said if if they if they convict if they find for Palin and against the Times that he was going to dismiss the case anyway. Um, so she'll argue that he improperly instructed the jury on the finding that he prejudiced the jury by announcing his ruling and that once he decided to dismiss the case, he should have stopped the jury deliberations without having them reach a pointless verdict. Um, so uh, my friend here thinks that uh, Rakoff did this because he wanted to influence the jury after he let them go home for the evening. He, he, he said they shouldn't look at the press, but he actually wanted them to find this. Then he would say he was dismissing the case they would find for the New York Times because what would be the point of finding for Palin? And uh, then the whole case would be over. Uh, no one's ever heard. I mean, it is an astonishing finding. First of all, can we just be serious for a minute? The New York Times isn't hostile to Sarah Palin. Some actual person wants to seriously argue that the preponderance of evidence of, you know, of, of a decade of writing in the New York Times about Sarah Palin would not demonstrate a, an institutional hostility to her. I mean, he said they did. He said that Palin's lawyers didn't prove that. But that's his opinion. Certainly wouldn't be my opinion. Can you imagine anybody doing this for anybody else other than Sarah Palin? I can't. In the case of Sarah Palin. Well, I mean, on the one hand, the uh, it doesn't matter what the verdict, particular verdict in the case is. If you if you wanted to have proof that the Times was the opinion page was kind of a debacle when it comes to conservatives, that everything that came out in trial 
showed that. I mean, they had to admit that they made an error, et cetera, et cetera. She's actually, she wants to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. She's been pretty clear about that. She wants to challenge the Sullivan standard. And if, you know, if you're a writer, that's not necessarily something you want to be cheering on, right? I mean, you can, you can argue uh, easily about the bias of the mainstream media, but the idea that we should lower our defamation standard, uh, it, the whole reason we have defamation tourism in places like the UK is that their standards are much lower. It's much easier to sue. Um, I'm not, I, I personally don't think we should try to lower our standard in this country, but that's what she wants. So she's going to pursue this case regardless, and she wants to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. So in that sense, maybe he thought he was sort of uh, uh, muddling that effort, but I agree, John, I don't, it, it seems an odd choice for the judge to make. Well, he's a contemptible person. He's a contemptible jurist, and he just did something extraordinarily contemptible that only will, as, as Noah was saying earlier about the, the kinds of policy decisions being made here uh, in, in the Canadian case, this is only going to uh, further establish the idea that the thumb of the establishment is on the scale against you know conservatives in any way, shape, or form, and 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 therefore why you know why why hold to any standards at all when this when when there are no standards uh, as long as you you know kowtow to the prevailing dominant culture's conventional wisdom. So that's uh, that's a pretty uh, serious matter. Um, speaking of things that we've never seen before, I don't think we've ever seen a discussion of when somebody is going to invade another country in the next 48 hours the way we did yesterday. Uh, this question of whether or not um, President Zelensky of the Ukraine said, we hear they're going to invade on Wednesday being... Um, trying to be savagely ironic or whether he actually meant it because they said we're going to have a day of unity. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the smoke and, and mirrors and fire around what is about to hap- go down in, in Ukraine, that, that's pretty new, right? Anybody think of anything remotely comparable? Mm, no. No, can't think of anything remotely comparable. Although I will, I will put in a good word for the Biden administration if this works out. So the news this morning is that Russia is putting out diplomatic feelers. They're saying they're withdrawing some troops back to permanent basing. No, NATO cannot confirm this and would be able to confirm this in rather short order if it were true. Nevertheless, some happy, you know, bleats out of Moscow about potentially de-escalating. It could be all just more confusion. Um, it might not be, who knows. Um, but if we do de-escalate, I think the, the White House deserves some credit for it by mounting this full court press effort to get people out, I'm to the consternation of Kiev. Kiev's very frustrated with us for moving everybody out and saying, this is the day we're gonna invade. And we had. Uh, the 16th is going to be the day they're going to be an invasion. Very, very plain, very explicit with the intelligence. And yesterday there was a bit of a diplomatic row because um, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, said this sort of contemptibly and mockingly saying, oh, the 16th is when they're going to invade. And it was translated literally in the Western press and the markets collapsed. They're like, oh, they're saying you're going to invade in the 16th. They're confirming the intelligence. Actually, it was not not the case, but that's difficult if you don't speak Ukrainian which I don't, so I can empathize with people who uh, fail to translate that appropriately. Nevertheless, the if the strategy was to deny Moscow the capacity to say, 
here's an event, here's a provocative event, we're going to respond to it defensively, um, which I think was the thinking behind this full court press effort to try to convince the Ukraine and the world that um, an invasion was going to occur in this week, then it will have been successful. It will have uh, compelled Russia to blink, at least temporarily, and that buys us more time to make uh, the targets in Ukraine harder, um, which is ultimately good. If Moscow does pull back and we don't see anything happening and then no invasion occurs, uh, it's more to the better. And I don't care who gets credit for the narrative. Russia will say, ah, look, the West was paranoid. The West made it all up. Um, they're, uh, they're obviously warmongers. We have no interest in conflict here. They get their narrative. We get to say we deterred conflict. We get our narrative. And thousands of people who would be dead will be alive. Uh, I'm okay with that as a trade-off, if that's how we get to a de-escalatory pattern of behavior where we go back to arms control talks and you know uh, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. That's fine with me as a resolution to this crisis. It also, if, if this continues and works out, puts the lie to the charge of the American isolationist right that had been saying, oh, the, the administration wants war. They're, they are, they're trying to rile us up for war. This is, this is all enough. They're going to bring us to war. When in fact, it was always perfectly clear that first, first the lack of effort on the administration's uh, part in responding to, to Putin's provocations, and then the sort of all the efforts that were cobbled together after Biden's uh, speech gaffe in which he seemed in which he broadcast sort of his indifference to the whole pros prospect of Putin invading. All of this was very obviously geared toward avoiding American conflict, avoiding Americans being involved in any sort of conflict. Obvious to everybody who's not engaged in motivated reasoning. These people, the, you know, the Russia apologists and the useful idiots in the West will say the threat never existed in the first place. And it was only a response to simultaneously only a response to, uh, you know, aggression in the West. They'll never admit it. You know what else they'll never admit? Because they're apologists and they're bad. They're bad people. They won't admit that they want the X chair. They won't admit it and they want it. You all want it. You know, you want it. You've heard me talk about it. So I'm going to tell you about it again because, you know, you want it. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? The X-chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? Your X-chair can. That's in the Alamax massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all reasons to love your X-chair. So take my advice. Try X-chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. So it appears that mass mandates are falling all over the place except where they should have fallen first. That is that that's where we are now that that this is an amazing thing. So uh, all over the place, they're falling, except in schools. And remember, kids under 18, I think we're still at 650, something like that, 700 dead since the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic. They should not be in masks. They should be free from masks. They should not. They are not. Uh, they are not creators of contagion. They are not giving each other covid. And uh, a lot of them are vaccinated. So uh, and yet uh, in D.C., in California, all over the place, uh, mass mandates are falling. 
except in schools. And I, I really, really hope that there is a God and that there is, you know, justice, uh, you know, <laughs> to be meted out uh, after, after we all, you know, after we all pass this mortal veil, because the people who are doing this to America's children deserve to answer to an eternal judge. I don't know what else to say. Well, there's also, uh, there continues to be this bizarre juxtaposition between the reactions that uh, rational adults, especially rational adults who have children have when they have these announcements. So in DC, I, I spoke to lots of people and I kind of monitored some of the online parenting sites. Everyone's like, what the hell is the mayor thinking? So you can like party at a bar, go work out at a gym. Uh, but if you jump in a taxi or on the Metro, you better put a mask on and your kids are going to be masked all day while you're out doing all this. It makes absolutely no sense. It's, it's, it's totally caving in to the irrational fears of the COVID zero people. And, you know, Axios had a story this morning where they're like, let's see what people think about this. And they only went around and talked to fearful COVID zero uh, irrational people who are like, I'm so scared now. I can't go to the coffee shop anymore. They didn't have a single voice from a single normal DC resident who has kids in school who said, you know what, this is ridiculous. We need to lift this mask mandate. The LA Times had an, had an op-ed or an opinion, uh, an editorial, I think it was, that basically said, oh, all you people complaining about kids in masks, kids don't mind. Well, how do they know? Have, they, have we seen a poll of young children who have to mask every day? Where are they getting this, this assumption that kids don't care about it? If you know someone who has a kid with sensory processing issues, they care. Anyone on the autism spectrum, they care. Regular kids who don't have any idea what their classmates look like. I mean, I have kids in high school who are starting to date. Like, they don't even know what half the girls look like in their school. It's a weird, weird thing, and kids don't like it. So this idea that, oh, it's not harming them is just adult fiction created to continue to fuel this irrational COVID fear. By primarily childless young professionals. And the problem is childless young professionals command the discourse. They are disproportionately represented in media and in government. Um, as at the staff level, and they control the discourse. And if you're a childless young professional now in Washington, D.C., why wouldn't you feel like the pandemic is over? It's almost basically over for you. You really don't ever encounter it, right. which is why they're going to be totally shocked in November when these sentiments just don't boil away. But I, I don't know that that's the thing about this. That's why I refer to the eternal judge is that for a lot of people who are who are doing this, they're not on the ballot. They're not, that's, that's, that's not what's happening. They, they, they exist in a different, uh, you know, continuum. Um, and, and so somebody's going to make them answer, <laughs> but I'm not sure that it's anyone, um, you know, in our, in our temporal universe. Um, uh, and that's too bad, but as I say, if you are a person of faith, maybe you can therefore, expect that there will be justice meted out um, appropriately in, you know, in in the way that cosmic or, you know, religious justice is, is, is meted out. And with that extremely strange ending, we're ending. So <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.